May peace be with you. If you stick around at the end, there's more information about our community and how to find us. And now, here's this week's Centering Scripture, followed by the sermon. Today's scripture, first scripture is from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Spirit of the Yahweh is upon me, because Yahweh has appointed me, anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to release the prisoners, to proclaim the year of God's favor and the days, the day of God's vindication, to comfort all who mourn. And our second reading is from Luke chapter 1, verses 50 to 52. A a portion of Mary's Magnificat, a description of God's upside-down kingdom. For you, the Almighty, have done great things for me, and holy is your name. Your mercy reaches from age to age. For those who reverence you, You have shown strength with your arm. You have scattered the proud in their conceit. You have deposed the mighty from their thrones and raised the lowly from high places. (laughs) Thank you. I wondered, pondered, whether to preach about the situation that we're facing at the moment. Where do we go from here? But I need more time to ponder that. And what we need today, I think, is a gentle sermon. So I'm going to tell you a story. Some of you have heard it or read it before, but that's okay. Now, this is a true story. All the stories I tell you are true. This one actually happened. (laughs) The star of the story is a man named, very appropriately, Buster. And Buster died recently, and I want to tell this story in honor of him and the life lesson I learned from him. There were only two wise men left. I was slumped back away from the typewriter, arms crossed, legs outstretched, in the universal body language for writer's block. I gazed out the window of my second floor study onto the scene below. The fresh blanket of snow covered up some of the shabbiness of the ancient plaster of uh, Paris crèche set arranged in the side yard of the church. About Half life sized, the nativity scene contained the usual cast of characters baby Jesus in the manger, a seated Mary in her traditional blue dress, a nondescript Joseph standing stoically in the background, a few shepherds scattered about the edges in the standing room only section, and a pair of wise men in royal regalia kneeling close in adoration. A rough hewn wooden backdrop framed the scene 
and a mature elm cast an avuncular arm over the entire tableau. Six inches of featherlight snow sparkling in the morning sunlight would normally fill me with joy, both for its innate beauty and for the anticipation of gliding across it on cross-country skis. But there'd be no skiing and certainly no joy until I got my Christmas Eve sermon written, or at least started. It was December 22. On Sunday afternoon, the deacons had decorated the sanctuary with aromatic pine boughs and ribbon candles on the sill of each stained-glass window. Yesterday, the office administrator had typed up the worship service and had run off 250 copies of the thick, carol-laden bulletin with the muted nativity scene on its cover. Last evening, the choir director had put the small but faithful choir through its final rehearsals with our new soprano ready to thrill us with O Holy Night. Everything and everyone was prepared, except the preacher. I wondered how long the church had owned this crush set. Nobody I'd talked to could remember a time before its existence. The figures were covered with webworks of cracks, scuffs, and chips. When the deacons hauled them out of storage at the beginning of December, they determined that the red-robed wise man was simply too damaged to be repaired one more time. He had finally succumbed to the effects of decades of silent vigil in Minnesota winters. The deacons had no choice but to retire him. Since the nativity scene was set back about 30 feet from the road, precisely to hide its condition, the deacons decided that the rest of the crush set was still good enough for now. The church members who were frantically searching for a new figure to replace the dearly departed wise men were having no success. This did not break my heart. Despite being a pastor, well, okay, because of being a pastor, I've never been much of a fan of outdoor nativity scenes. Here in Minnesota, the live outdoor nativity scenes are simply ridiculous and thankfully rare because the costumes never fully conceal the snowmobile suits underneath. And the still-life scenes always have seemed too reverential, too antiseptic, too still for what must have been chaotic and confusing and scary. Birth is exciting and loud and messy. Add in dazzling and terrifying angels and a handful of scruffy and smelly shepherds. Then throw in some weird astrologers from a strange and far-off land bringing bizarre baby shower gifts. Surround them all with assorted goats, chickens, donkeys, cows. Top it all off with a heavenly lighthouse beam showing the way and you've got quite a party. So my problem with typical nativity scenes is that they give a sense of the original events about as much as a postcard does justice to Mardi Gras. Add the deteriorating condition of this particular crush set and the irritating fact that the figures had Norwegian complexions, <laughs> and I was not a big fan. But nobody asked my opinion, and I wisely kept it to myself. You don't mess with church traditions if you value your job. To be fair, I wondered if nativity scenes aren't attempting the impossible. Incarnation is such a sweet mystery. 
the idea that God, God, somehow is embodied in a baby born long ago in Bethlehem. How can anything do justice to that? As a pastor, I've always found the high holy days of Christmas and Easter to be the hardest to preach. Everyone knows the story so well. What does one say that is fresh and insightful and brief? For it's a daunting crowd on Christmas Eve. The four o'clock service full of antsy children who understandably can't wait to get home and open presents. At the 11 o'clock candlelight service, it's pretty much adults. Adults who have just finished a month-long marathon of buying and baking and bustling, of wrapping and writing and wrangling, of hosting and toasting and Christmas card posting, a month-long marathon run at the pace of a 60-yard dash. Now, it's Christmas Eve. And people truly want to be attentive and worshipful. But on top of the last month's frenzied schedule this evening, they have consumed great quantities of food, and many of them a libation or three. The sanctuary lights are low. The candles give off a drowsy scent. People doze. This was the challenge facing me. 54 hours to go, and I was desperate to think of something new to say. Or if not new, something that would at least keep people from snoring. I was drawing a blank. It occurred to me, not for the first time, that Christmas is not about words. In fact, God chose to become flesh precisely because words didn't do it. For centuries, prophets and teachers had tried to tell people what God was like using words such as righteousness, compassion, justice, but the people didn't get it. They needed to be shown. And so that Bethlehem baby, surrounded by animals cradled in a feed box, grew to be a special man, an amazing person, that many people understood to be the very incarnation of God's grace and justice and love. Yes, Jesus talked about God, but he also in some mysterious way embodied God. Christmas is not about words. Still, the congregation would be expecting words. My sermon. Looking down on the nativity scene, I tried to imagine myself joining that first motley collection of worshipers. If I were to journey to the manger, what symbol of love would I bring? What eloquent words of adoration would I say? Perhaps such an exercise would jumpstart my brain. Or not. Minutes passed. I took off my glasses, rubbed my eyes, and massaged my temples. Opening my eyes, I spotted a lone pedestrian coming down the main street sidewalk, which had not yet been cleared of the snow that fell the previous night. As I replaced my glasses, the figure came into focus. With a jolt of recognition, I leaned sideways for a better view around the leafless birch shivering outside my window. Wool pants, several layers of grimy wool sweaters, Woolen stocking cap, woolen gloves, a long woolen scarf trailing behind, all drab brown and olive, a complexion that epitomized the word swarthy, 
a bit on the short side, but with the neck and shoulders of a prize fighter, and carrying a billy club, shuffling in a semi-jog through the snow. Buster! I was delighted to see him, I realized with amazement, delighted from the security of my second-floor study. It had been years since I'd last spotted around town, and I was grateful to discover that he was still alive and out and about. The first time I saw him, shortly after I moved to town a dozen years earlier, I was driving in my car near our little downtown. He was jogging along the sidewalk in an irregular, shuffling, forward-leaning gait. He was wearing nearly the identical get-up, wool pants, wool sweaters, wool cap. But it was not Christmas time. It was August. And not one of those surprisingly cool August, late August days, but 88 degrees and humid. He was talking to himself. But unlike mentally, many mentally ill people who seem totally inward focused, this man was continually swiveling his head and looking around. He would scowl and growl and yell at people in cars passing by, jogging backwards and sideways to take it all in and shake his nightstick at them. I would see him once or twice a year, always jogging along the downtown sidewalks, always in the same attire and carrying the club. Fortunately, each time I was in the safety of my car. In talking with folks around town, I learned a little about this man for whom life seemed so tortured. Buster wasn't born with a problem, but had lived a perfectly normal childhood starring in sports. Turns out my first impression had been right. He not only was built like a prize fighter, in fact, he had been one. And now he was permanently brain injured, punch drunk. I had great compassion for this poor soul. But I'm not ashamed to say I found him to be very frightening. Now here he was, in the familiar shuffle jog plowing a meandering furrow through the half foot of fluffy snow. He hadn't changed a bit in the last several years. I was grateful for the distraction. As usual, Buster was muttering to himself and swiveling, in his, swiveling his body to take in everything around him. The passing pickup, the red rick new city hall across the street, a flock of sparrows chittering past, our quaint stone church. Then... He spotted the crush figures, the holy family in aging plaster of Paris. He veered off the sidewalk and started tromping through the snow toward them, billy club gripped in his right hand. I sucked air audibly through my teeth and bit my lower lip, leaning so close to the window that I sensed the cold on my forehead. My breath would have fogged the pain had I remembered to breathe. I silently pleaded, don't touch anything. Despite my dislike for the crush set, I didn't want this symbol of holiness damaged. As Buster neared this scene, his pace slowed. He almost tiptoed the last few steps and then stopped front and center. He slowly looked from figure to figure. Shepherds, two wise men, Joseph, Mary, a little congregation gathering around the central mystery of our faith. 
all of them so vulnerable and exposed. Then Buster reverentially dropped to his knees in the snow, laid down his club, removed his gloves, and leaned forward and gently brushed the snow off of baby Jesus. I took a deep breath, in and out. My shoulders relaxed. I swallowed and leaned back away from the window. There below me was my sermon. Almost all of my parishioners knew Buster, knew him in the same superficial way that I had known him until a few moments ago. They had watched him from the safety of their cars or homes, felt sorry for him, feared him. I would tell our parishioners what I just witnessed, the story of adoration, of love incarnate. The third wise man had arrived. As a church located on Lakota land in Minnetonka, Minnesota, St. Luke is a joyful, inclusive, intergenerational, and compassionate community on a spiritual journey seeking to do justice, make peace, and to walk humbly with God. We invite you to join us live for virtual worship each Sunday morning on Facebook or YouTube, or by following the worship links on our website, stluke.mn. Thanks for listening. May you go in peace.